This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our new celebrity guest scorer, my personal friend, Dennis Sai. Good evening. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. And you? I think we're both excellent, Dad. I'm good. All right. We have a good baseline for the rest of the program then. We'll just try and remain in that flow. So, Dennis, with all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So first, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Yeah, I'm a database developer in the healthcare industry, and um, I just love being immersed in in a story that's being told on a screen that's bigger than yourself for about two hours. Just, uh, yeah, just love being immersed in, in, in different stories. All right. Second question, as we always ask, what is your favorite movie and why? For the longest time, it was uh, The Shawshank Redemption, ever since I saw it in, uh, in 1995. And then um, when I saw Wall-E, 2000, uh, 2008, um, then it became Wall-E. And then ever since I saw this movie that we're going to talk about in 2017, it's been my favorite movie. The story, the writing, the animation, the direction, the, the, the soundtrack, the plot twists, the love story. Um, I, I just think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the epitome of a perfect movie, and that's why I think it's uh, my favorite. And we're going to obviously have a lot more to discuss on this one. I have quite a few different thoughts that I'd like to uh, pick your brain on as we go along here. But just the last question we always ask. What makes a good movie for you? A good movie needs to have dramatic tension. If I'm not invested in a movie, in what happens next, um, then I lose interest. And then I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just bored till the end. So dramatic tension. Well, this movie definitely has that. So I can see why you like it. Mm -hmm. All right. As aforementioned, Tonight, we, for our 154th episode, discuss the anime classic, Your Name, from 2016, directed and written by Makoto Shinkai, and then, because there are different voice actors depending on which version of the movie that you have seen, I will just read the character names and hopefully get the pronunciations as correct as possible. My Japanese pronunciation is probably very poor. However, we will make an attempt. Taki Tachibana, Mitsuwa Miyamizu, Katsuhiko Tessi Teshigawara, Sayaka Natori, Tsukasa Fuji, Shinta Tagagi, Miki Akudera, Hitoha Miyamizu, Yatsua Miyamizu, Toshiki Miyamizu, Futaba Miyamizu, and Yukari Yukino. How did I do, Dennis? Very good. Okay. All right, so recognition for this movie, Your Name, was wide released on August 26, 2016. It made an estimated 
$382 million from a budget of roughly $5.6 million. The film was critically acclaimed with praise for the animation, music, visuals, and emotional weight, and broke numerous box office records, including becoming the third highest grossing anime film of all time, unadjusted for inflation. The film won Best Animated Feature at the 2016 Los Angeles Film Critics Association Awards, also at the 49th Sitches Film Festival, and as the 71st Manichi Film Awards Best Film as well, and was nominated for Best Animation of the Year at the 40th Japan Academy Prize. A live-action American remake is currently in production by Paramount Pictures and is being co-developed by Bad Robot Productions, J.J. Abrams' company. Your Name currently holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 79 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So a good place to start for this film, since generally the majority of our audience tends to be American, is the Japanese cultural tradition, I would say, or affinity towards animation and specifically anime that maybe people like myself are not engrossed with. So Dennis, I asked you this a little bit ahead of time. Apparently you've come very prepared for this question. But why is animation and anime such a cultural touchstone for the Japanese? Yep, I did, I did a little bit of research on this. So one reason, Japan has had a long culture and history of visual arts. You have ikebana, like flower arranging, or chado, which is like the preparation and aesthetic uh, presentation of, of tea, uh, kabuki, for example, so there's like that that uh, connection with visual arts, obviously. And then there was this big television boom in the 1960s in Japan. So the largest influence on anime growth coincided with this, with Japan's electronic boom. So it became the best platform for anime creators uh, to showcase their, their work. And Japanese TV broadcast was dominated by... Uh, Anime, anime series. Unlike in the West, where it's treated as a subculture, like anime and animation, it dominates uh, pop culture in Japan. It's very pervasive. Um, you could see anime or animated or anime characters used as advertising, on, say, on, on vending machines, for example. In the West, anime is like associated with social misfits, but like in Japan, it's very mainstream. It's uh, mainstream entertainment beloved by, by many people. People in Japan watch anime from a very early age, but they don't stop uh, watching anime after childhood. There's many, many different anime genres and they're very age specific. There are series that involve mature themes. And so anime really captures experiences of, of the Japanese people from, from childhood to adulthood. And so anime in Japan has become a medium for, for storytelling, for different kinds of stories. So it's not just for kids, but there are like uh, movies uh, by, for example, Satoshi Kon, uh, the late... Satoshi Kon um, that deals with 
mature themes and sexual assault and dreams versus reality. So, so yeah, cultural touchstone. So it's kind of embedded into the historical nature of how they've done their storytelling for a long time, from what I'm understanding, correct? Yes, that's correct. So, Dad, this is the third animated film that we've covered on the show so far. Behind the previously mentioned Wally was our first. Then we did Shrek. We have often mentioned that there are genres that are forgotten a lot in the great movies of all time. Animation tends to be one of those. Why do you think that it's seen so often, as Dennis mentioned earlier, as kind of a lesser genre or a subgenre of film, at least in, in America? Well, it's associated primarily with children in America. And, I mean, if you watch a Bugs Bunny cartoon, Bugs Bunny started in the, in the 30s, uh, went through the 40s, and then really hit its high point in the late 40s into the 50s when Chuck Jones took over uh, as the direct primary director. But there are so many adult jokes within those because even though they were the they were run before the main feature of the film, they still were watched not just by children but by adults too. But for whatever reason they became associated with just being childish or childlike. And so it's been put up. Although look at where we are in this culture. First off in the sixties, one of the popular television shows was the Flintstones, which was an adult sitcom. It was the honeymooners, the Jackie Gleason, Art Carney honeymooners that was converted into a cartoon and uh, was very popular. It had a spinoff, which went the other direction from being prehistoric to being uh, futuristic, which was the Jetsons, which was also on Prime TV. And what is it now, 30 years that The Simpsons have been on television? That seems about right, about uh, 1990, 1991, somewhere in that direction. Yeah, Fox tried to kill Family Guy. That lasted for about three or four years until demand from people renting episodes got it back on. And it's been going strong for, what, at least 15 years since. You have King of the Hill. Well, that's finished. That's off. Correct. But you still have other Seth MacFarlane productions like American Dad. Yes. And so the reason they exist is because it gives creators an opportunity to do things that they could not do in a live production. You can be a little more open to doing things that would be impossible physically or by the laws of physics in animation that without having to have CGI and the expense of CGI. And I don't know if, I know that Fox is going to be bringing back the Flintstones, and I can't remember if it's supposed to be a live action or if it's a cartoon. That's been shelved for three years. They're bringing it back. It was. I just read an article that it's being pushed forward for a fall release. Well, last I knew it was shelved three years ago because it was something Seth MacFarlane was working on, but then he got into other programming and he got too busy to try and reboot it. I don't know, but I just saw that they were bringing it back for the anticipation for a fall release. That being said, when is the last time you watched network television that wasn't for something live? 
I don't watch network TV. I barely have watched network TV for 35, 40 years. So would you say that Walt Disney is the major culprit behind placing this in a more out of the mainstream point of view? Probably, because Disney always wanted to have the innocence aspect of animation. The studio that brought you Bambi is going for innocence. Yeah, but even Bambi is innocent. I mean, there's a reason why deer hunting across the United States declined significantly the year after Bambi was released. I mean, he did know how to move children. But even then, once Disney was gone and they started falling apart a little bit, they brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg. He, you know, started doing things like Beauty and the Beast, which is full of adult humor, and then Aladdin with Robin Williams, because Katzenberg realized that parents are taking their kids, and kids are, or the parents are going to be more inclined to take their kids to Disney films if there's something for them to enjoy also. And that's fair. I I do think there has to be programming for children and young adults. And often this is the only medium that's extended to them. Otherwise, it's even more flowery stuff. But this is something that seems easy for them to understand and learn from in a way that I don't know if they could understand a lot of live action themes until at least, you know, maybe seven, eight years old, I would guess. But that's me maybe projecting a bit. Bringing it back around. So my relationship to this movie is really only through Dennis. Because we are part of the same movie discussion group here in Madison. And he selected this for our group. So I thought it'd be a good one to discuss on the show as we continue to try and branch out to some newer films. I was impressed by the movie at the time. I think as a second rewatch, I... Noticed a lot of things I didn't even notice the first time. Dad, you had not seen the movie previously, but that leaves Dennis. This is obviously a very important film for you. What is your relationship to it? So I saw the this movie for the first time on a flight from Chicago to Tokyo. I had heard of the movie uh, a few months before that. But then when I found out that it was on the flight, I told myself, you know what, why, why don't I give it, give it a chance? And um, I remember being embarrassed because I was crying in my seat. And then a few months later, uh, in March 2017, I found out that um, it, it was uh, playing at the local theater here. And um, as, uh, as I told the movie discussion group, I saw the movie 14 times in 16 days. I, I just couldn't believe that I was watching the same thing that I saw on that flight. So um, that is my relationship with this movie. And so what do you think it's about? Mm, this is a good question. It's, it's about the old and the young, the family and uh, tradition and what is your obligation, the big city life versus rural country living. It's uh, It's a love story. It's a fantasy. It's... It's all of the above, I guess. What, what do you think? So I actually, having rewatched this again, was very struck by a lot of the Western romanticism that I found in the movie. Specifically, there are two different stories that come to mind that are 
much older and become kind of uh, a basis or a foundation for a lot of modern romantic storytelling. One being Romeo and Juliet, two people separated by circumstances that can't be together, but find a way eventually to be together, albeit through tragedy. This has a tragedy and it kind of reverses that. The other part of me, especially with how the first uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes of the movie goes, reminds me a lot of Pride and Prejudice, that they are very estranged from each other. They're kind of annoyed at each other. And they kind of grow through the circumstance to appreciate and then develop a fondness for each other as we kind of go along. And so I know that the opening, what is it, monologue from the stagehand, or I, I guess I can't remember what the character's name from Romeo and Juliet is, is but talking about star-crossed lovers, this movie quite literally applies that. And so it's two people separated by both tragedy and time that somehow make it through both of those in a fairly supernatural method to, I would assume, and we'll get to that in remaining questions, but end up together in the end. Dad, what do you think? <laughs> I'm going to get deep here. Ooh, my favorite parts. I, I watched the film and I struggled. I really struggled because I couldn't understand what was going on. I know you have a hard time with some fantasy elements and different things, and I tried to warn you a little bit. I know. But I was hoping it would be more understandable if we could discuss it. Okay, so I said, all right, I'm if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. So I watched it a second time on Tuesday, and it made much more sense the second time. And about halfway through the film, it dawned on me what this really is. I, I would assume everybody who's a li who is in a relationship or a marriage out among our listeners, their spouse at some point says, why do you love me? And you're like, I, I can't explain that. It's a feeling that I just can't explain. This is an explanation. They talk in, at times about reincarnation and parallel universes and all that. This is a adaptation, a spiritual concept of how love is developed. These people develop a relationship over time and then it dissipates and they meet up later and they can't explain their attraction to each other. And the attraction is this past history that they can't remember. And it kind of provides you with a basis of what causes people, certain people, who you don't necessarily think of as being compatible, why there is a physical, sexual chemistry there that exists. And this is an attempt to try to explain that. At least that's the, what I got out of the film. I thought that this really tried to take two people from two different worlds and try to put them in a juxtaposition where this is explaining how they ended up together and why they have a relationship. And the statements that were being made over and over explains relationships, which I'm in you, you're in me. And every relationship, even when people divorce, the person you leave or who leaves you is still in you. Because the relationship changes you because you have assumed 
some of their energy, some of their being, their soul as part of you. That's what makes breakup so painful is, is that separation because they have a tentacle on you that hurts to pull away from your soul. And that's what I'm getting out of this film is explaining these, at least from the point of view of a culture very different than the American culture. You were right. You got deep there. I'm not sure that uh, there's much need for follow-up, so I'm going to badly transition us to, let's get some more background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Mitsuha and Taki are two teens living vastly different lives. Mitsuha lives a rather dull life, riff with cultural tradition in the small countryside town of Itomori, while Taki lives in the fast-paced city of Tokyo. Fed up with her cyclical life, Itsua longs to experience life in Tokyo and wishes to become a handsome Tokyo boy in her next life. Her dreams partially come to fruition when both characters swap bodies back and forth. As they swap, both try to live life through the other with unforeseen consequences as they each develop a bond with the other. Thank you. Did you know? The red braided cord that Mitsua wears represents the invisible red string of fate that is said to connect someone to their fated person, according to Japanese tradition. Did you know? This is the first anime film not made by Studio Ghibli or Hayao Miyazaki to gross 10 billion yen at the Japanese box office, or roughly 98 million US dollars. It was also the second highest grossing anime film before being surpassed by, get this, Demon Slayer the movie, Mugen Train, four years later. Did you know? Writer-director Makoto Shinkai personally found his film to be, quote, incomplete, unbalanced, due to time and budget constraints. Did you know? Radwimps, the band behind all of the music for the film, wrote all new English covers of their original songs for the film's international debut in English-speaking territories. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the third highest-grossing film of 1958 and our first Tennessee Williams adaptation in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, directed and written by Richard Brooks, co-written by James Poe, starring Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, and Burl Ives. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance is up first here. Let's let Dennis start, since this is your favorite movie. For me, it was Makoto Shinkai, the writer and the director. Wow, to have come up with... uh with this story and uh, the visuals and, uh, and even enlisted a Japanese rock band to compose the musical score. So I have to give it to the writer and director Makoto Shinkai. I mirror your thoughts. Exactly. I dad, I would be so bold as to say, I, I would assume that he's also your best performance. Yes. And the most charismatic. Okay. Do explain. Well, because I think this is a reflection of him personally. And if you enjoy the film, you're enjoying his complete brainchild, his creativity, his vision, 
his artistic flair. And I can't think of any other way to say vision and flair more than being a charismatic figure. So to borrow from what I did earlier with the cast, because this is multiple voices, depending on which version that you saw, I'll just go with character names. For me, the most charismatic, and I know we're jumping around a bit because we didn't do our best secondary, but was actually Miki Okudera. I thought she actually provided a lot of emotional weight to a character that, by all standards, was a little immature for the majority of the film and had some growing up to do, and she seemed to be somewhat of his romantic guide in a way. And so for me, that character is vital to the path that this story takes because each important part, she is a capstone on. So the original storyline where they're switching bodies in the first place, she caps it off with their date. And she's also guiding Mitsua through work when she's playing Taki. Then it's the journey to find Ida Murray, and she becomes kind of the reassuring guide behind him, figuring out what happened, what all was the circumstances for what he remembers, and then somewhat comforting in the aftermath of finding out the, spoiler alert, that she's dead. And then finally, she becomes kind of, again, the spiritual guide at the end of the movie, as he's trying to figure out what's missing from his life. And so I think she's a reflection of somebody we wish we probably had in our lives personally, that she seems to be a very caring, warm, empathetic friend. And while she has feelings for him at one time or another, she develops a very different relationship, recognizing what's changing within him. And so I thought the support, the friendship, I I just thought she was the most charismatic to me. Dennis, let's round out this category and then we'll jump back to best secondary. What did you have for most charismatic? Yeah, I um, I listed down Taki because as you said, you know, he had some growing up to do and he did, he did grow, grow up during, you know, during this movie and um, he showed bravery and determination to actually drink some of that sake and, uh, and uh, try to save uh, a whole town. So I, I listed on Taki for most charismatic. Best secondary, I had Taki as well for that. I just think he takes on probably the more central role of the film. And while the big challenge for Mitsua is eventually surviving and the town surviving, I think he's the agent of change, the catharsis that has to happen within the movie. As we mentioned, he has some maturing to do through the course of this. And I think his journey becomes the more central to developing that relationship because she clearly has feelings developed before he even recognizes what those are. And I think if you ask or listen to any adolescent psychologist, girls develop a lot faster than men. So it can be explained that uh, he, he takes a while to kind of come around to it. But eventually he finds himself in the place where he needs to be for this to happen. And so maybe the age gap or that three-year distance helps him with some of the uh, learning that he needs to do or the developing he needs to do to be in the right place to 
eventually help save the town, save her, and be the person that he needs to be when they actually do meet. Dad, best secondary? Rad Wimps. I really enjoyed the music and how it, it added a lot to the film. It built tension. It helped convey a mood when it needed to. You know, I wasn't aware of who it was until I started looking. And the fact that, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, this is in English. I mean, is this like dubbed from an American band or is this? But no, then I find out that it was a Japanese band who just wrote English verses. I thought it was a fine performance and I thought it added to the film significantly. Yep, I'm going to agree with Dana here. Uh, I listed down Radwimps as well. I mean, they're a Japanese rock band, and um, I really thought that the their score enhanced the the visuals. Um, there are a couple of of songs that I still listen to here and then. One is the date scene, and the other one is um, called Sparkle, and I'll talk more about it as we go along. So then we have best scene. Uh, I have seven nominees, and some of these are kind of long segments. I wouldn't say they're like an individual scene, but they're longer cut together pieces of the movie. So the first one that I really have, because I think you're a little bit confused when you have kind of this cold open and it takes you a while to understand kind of the pattern of what's going on. But really when the movie gets going for me is that first day in Tokyo after she wakes up as Taki for the first time, because until that point you can't realize that they're actually switching bodies. So it starts to kind of more make sense at that point in time. You realize that she has gone into this other boy and that she's living out this alternate life for a day. All the chaos and the Michigas that happens that day, obviously I think is influential on the rest of the film. And and we have a lot of callbacks, including the explanation of magic hour in the classroom that day. So some very good early shadowing. The date with Akudera, which I think is kind of a turning point in the movie, obviously as a romantic point of view. Then we have what I will just say is Itomori, which is the discovery to figure out what happened to Mitsua. And obviously the twist on the movie, probably about halfway through. Then I have Taki in the dream world, which is after he takes the Saki and they kind of cross paths a little bit, where he goes on that spiritual journey. Then I have Magic Hour, which is when the two of them actually meet face-to-face for the first time, even if they're in a kind of a spirit world. I have the Day of the Comet, so kind of the resolution of what happened to the town and the saving grace, if you will. And then I have finally the Back to the Present or slash the Epilogue, which is the end of the film, probably the last 10-15 minutes. Did I miss anything major that either of you would like to add on? No. Nope. All right. So out of these, what is the best scene? I'm going to go for the twist of Itamori and kind of that middle journey, partially because to me watching this the first time, one of the things that I really remember the most was just the pit in my stomach when you find out the twist. And even though I've only known these characters for maybe 35, 40 minutes, it just seems crushing. So for me, from an emotional standpoint, that still holds probably the most significance as far as the best scene. So I'll go there. 
Yeah, my scene was from when, you know, the day of the comet, from when Mitsuhan was left alone at the top of that crater to when the comet finally hits the town. And um, this is what I was referring to. It's about like eight minutes long and it's accompanied by that song Sparkle that uh, Radwimps plays. I, I just love that scene. Dan? Mine was also the twist. I, I just thought that was so well done and it really opened up the the spiritual aspect of the film that this was more than than what we're visually seeing that there's more here and I think that really kind of characterizes the film in general I would tend to agree I thought that the movie maybe the first half an hour or so when they're switching back and forth it was another version of like a freaky Friday type of thing yes the movie just takes a whole new layer of depth once you get kind of past that initial date and Akudera says, well, you've been changed by somebody, you've met somebody, and you're not the same person that you were. And so then he goes on this journey of discovery, not only of himself, of this person that he now has this relationship with. And when it turns like that, I thought the movie got a much richer and deeper feeling to it. So favorite scene for me is the magic hour. I think that's just a very special moment in the movie because it's really the only time the two are interacting in the same scene together. Every other time it's through like an edit where one will be saying something and then we'll cross edit and then it'll be another or the other character from the other perspective, but it's not them going face to face and actually confronting each other with all of the events that are going on. We don't get it again until the end of the film. And by that point, they've already forgotten everything that's happened during the course of the film. So it's really that one special time where they're able to connect and where you've kind of been given the payoff of everything that's come before it. So to me, that's my favorite. Mine is the early part where they're finding themselves in the other's body and they're exploring. And I found it humorous, you know, when... He's feeling his breasts, and she's looking down between her legs. By the way, I want to point out the scene where they're together and she gets mad because he's touched her breasts. I mean, really? She's been touching other parts of him, and that or the breasts are the minimal part that I would be concerned about if I were her. Dennis? My was... um. That date scene between uh, Take and Miss Okudera. There's this song that I mentioned, the date song from the Radwimps. And around the three-minute mark, the strings come on. And then um, I could just imagine that plane uh, flying as uh, Take looks up. And then he finds out, or he doesn't, he tries calling uh, Mitsuha and he gets, uh, uh, so, like, uh, he, he couldn't reach Mitsuha. So that's my... My favorite one. As far as most indelible moment, the twist is it for me. The first thing I thought about when this was coming back up to do on the show was, oh yeah, there's that big moment where it just kind of flips the movie on edge. And uh, I would not be surprised if either of you also picked that. Mine was the very first image of that, you know, like the very first scene, the comic debris falling from the sky. Yeah, I, I, I just can't forget that uh, that scene. My indelible moment is the closing. 
Oh, okay. And the first time I thought, there's something about this that speaks to me. And then the second time I watched it, I realized what it was. When my, well, the person I used to share parents with got married. I walked into the church after having been in Milwaukee working. And there's a soloist singing. And I immediately was like, that is the woman that I'm going to potentially spend the rest of my life with. That moment. That's why that scene spoke to me. You don't understand it. You can't explain it. And I still, to this day, have no idea why I felt that way. I don't know. But that's what it said to me. All right. This is a good opportunity to take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute... If you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of the show. Or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com slash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 146 movies we've graded so far, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Robert Blake, 89, American actor. TV star from Beretta, was in the movie In Cold Blood and Lost Highway. He was also a child actor in The Little Rascals. Uh, won an Emmy in 1975. He's most known recently for the fact that he was on trial for the murder of his wife. Second wife. Second wife. He was acquitted, but, um, yeah. Let's just say that he was ostracized very much from Hollywood and was not included in the Oscars in memoriam this last weekend, other than Jimmy Kimmel making a very passing joke at his passing. Yes. Heim Topol, 87, Israeli actor, Starred in Fiddler on the Roof, the movie version. Was in Flash Gordon and For Your Eyes Only. Oscar nominee for Fiddler on the Roof in 1971. I know that we've mentioned it before on the show, that I have somewhat of a complicated history or time with the Roger Moore Bond films. I am much more into the original Sean Connery films or the Daniel Craig films partly because the campiness of the Moore films never really appealed to me in the same way. I know for some people, Roger Moore is their bond. For some people, Pierce Brosnan is their bond. It really is a generational thing. All I'll say is, for your eyes only, he is one of the few good parts of an otherwise forgettable film for me. I actually did not even realize that was him in For Your Eyes Only until I read the obituary. It's a very different looking character, Overall, because he's playing kind of a suave, debonair type of character comparatively to like Fiddler, where he's much more stripped down as far as the rawness of, of the character he's portraying. So, yeah, I wouldn't have made the association that it's the same character until we had to look it up here for In Memoriam. But an unfortunate passing for the larger Bond fan universe. And so we remember these here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence in their honor.
Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. I will take the first one here. Hitoa Miyamizu, treasure the experience. Dreams fade away after you wake up. That was my first one, and I'll just comment, isn't that true? Nightmares linger, but favorable dreams you have a hard time remembering. To be quite honest, I don't know the last dream I've ever had, so I couldn't tell you. I can tell you the last nightmare I had, but we won't discuss that. Were you making a uh, oral argument in front of the court naked? No. Oh. No, because I'm virtually doing that each time anyway. At least that's what I feel like sometimes. Mm. Better make sure that you've uh, trimmed up a little bit. Yeah, well. What's your nominee for your second one, then? There's no way we could meet. But one thing is certain. If we see each other, we'll know that you were the one who was inside me and that I was the one inside you. Dennis, first nominee. I feel like I'm always searching for someone or something. That's uh, by Taki Tachibana. Taki, the dream I must have had, I can never recall. But, Mitsuha, but the sensation that I've lost something lingers for a long time after I wake up. This feeling has possessed me, I think, from that day. Dennis, do you have any others? Yeah, um, some mornings I wake up crying without knowing why. That's from Mitsuha. And then another one is the only thing that does last when I wake up is a sense of loss. Also from Mitsuha. My last one, both shared by the two primary characters as the final line in the film. Your name is? Dad, do you have any left? Nope. Dennis? Nope. All right. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. This is going to be an interesting one. So, Dad, usually you or I lead off when we have a first-time guest. Do you want to go first or second on Legacy here? Go ahead. So, I have to think about it in relation to how we discussed one of our few other international favorites from earlier on in the show, Three Idiots, and try and give this some of the same, I guess, courtesy that we did at the time. A lot of the box office and industry and audience for this film is in a culture and a community and a world that is not necessarily our own. This is not a film that I think you could go around to the average American and they would know of this film. But on the other side of the world, this was an incredibly popular film. So we have to somehow come up with a ranking based on both of those facts. And I don't know if I can necessarily detract from the movie because of an American audience that this was not necessarily intended for in the first place, even though it's made its way to this side of the world for us to even be discussing it. So I do think that there was a massive audience for this film, and there probably continues to be, but I struggle with knowing how to exactly grade the film because we're only two years removed from the impact significance zone which we usually define as that first five-year period of the movie. Because I'm kind of in an ignorant space as to how the movie is still perceived, how much it continues to carry on, I'm going to go with that it's going to only be a slightly faded version of what I think the initial impact significance score is going to be, and I'll go a 4.5 for the audience. From an industry standpoint, 
I'll actually raise it slightly because knowing that there has been at least an attempted production of the live action version, even though they're changing a lot of the story to fit a more Western audience. Anytime you get one of these bigger international films that the American audience wants remade for it, you know there has to be some cultural cachet as to its importance and the recognition within the industry that this could be something that they could tap into to make their own. So from an initial impact standpoint, I'll be a little bit less in the impact significance zone for the industry. But for its overall legacy, I will also go with a 4.5 for a 9 overall. I know that was a a little bit more elongated, and uh, I hope everybody was able to follow me on that one. But go ahead, Dad. I was impressed by the number of DVD sales that exist in the United States in the last couple of years. I mean, it's in the multi-millions, which shocked me because... I didn't think there would be a huge fan base for anime in the United States, but to me, that says something about an international market. So for the public, I went with a 4.5 simply because it seems to have a legacy outside of Japan that I didn't know about, but the more I researched, I did. Industry, I went with a 3.5 simply because I tried to find if there were other type of similar uh, anime films being done and there weren't that I could find. So I'm wondering, you know, if this is just something that has been considered as being a finite production that, you know, is not going to be able to be reproduced. It's not going to necessarily, I gave it a little bit higher points because of the fact that it's being looked at for, live action production and conversion to the United States. So 3.5 and 4.5. So I'm coming up with a uh, eight. All right, Dennis, it's to you. I graded this uh, 4.5 for, you know, legacy within the industry, because as, as you guys said, um, as you guys mentioned, there is that Hollywood remake happening with this movie and then also 4.5 for how the public perceives um, this film. And I was looking at it from the fact that, as you guys said, there's so many anime lovers that know about this film and, and just love it. And uh, a lot of new anime lovers are still uh, discovering this film. So I graded, I gave it a 4.5 for, uh, for, for the public. So a total of nine. So that's an 8.67 average between the three of us. Impact significance, just because it's not very different from what my original legacy score was. Again, this is only seven years removed from its original debut in Japan, but for the most part, I think it's only about six years for the rest of the world to have kind of seen this. The fact that it is a top grocer in other countries like China, that it went to countries like Germany and The limited showings that it did have, they had to increase because they were immediately sold out. I do think this has an unusual audience for it, for a film that I don't think anybody was necessarily expecting. So while the industry is not nearly as high, I give that a four. 
I'll go a five on the audience here for a nine overall. I, I'm just going to mirror your comments, which is, again, I mean, the fact that this was so incredibly popular and had such a wide audience in multiple countries, I have to give it a five for that reason. And for the industry, again, it, it's relatively finite from what I can tell, but it's still, the critics really enjoyed it. It had great reviews. It played at a film festival in Los Angeles, and American critics viewing it loved it. American critics in foreign publications loved it. Um, so I went with a four because I think that it, within its genre and within that sphere was extremely well-received, but I think I have to give it a point down simply because, again, it's within a certain lane. It can't, it doesn't transcend wider. Unfortunately, I think this is a film that could very well have done so, but it didn't. So I went with a nine. I gave it a 4.5 for how it impacted um, the anime, anime viewing public, because as you guys said, it made a lot of money, sold a lot of DVDs. But I own, I'm only giving it a 3.5 for impact or significance within the industry because I don't think it had a lot of impact with regard to like changes to within the uh, anime industry. So just um, just an 8 overall. All right. So that's, once again, an 8.67 average between the three of us. Novelty. Dad, I'll let you go first on this one. Oh... Uh, the first thing that I thought about when I first watched it the first time is this seems to be Freaky Friday with more meaning. So I have to give it a point down as far as novelty to that extent. But it also seems to be a film about multiverse. And it also seems to have elements about a philosophical and, and reincarnation and time warps and all that. So I had to give it points back up for that. So I went with an eight overall because the combination of this was extremely unique. I'm going to give it a nine um, because to me, it did push boundaries. Before this movie, I never thought an animated movie could could move me this way. So I'm, I, I gave it a nine in, in that sense. So I'll agree with a lot of your comments, Dad, that I thought it combined some fairly well-known tropes. I had mentioned before that I could comparatively, as far as the structure, talk about both Pride and Prejudice and Romeo and Juliet. I had also mentioned Freaky Friday earlier. So there are some borrowed tropes. I don't know that this film, though, fits into any one strict genre. It's not a romantic comedy. It is somewhat of a romantic film, but it's not your ordinary one. It has a lot of fantasy elements. In some regards, it's a disaster movie. It's obviously animation, which to some people is a genre to itself, as opposed to just a, a form of the medium. So I actually think that this deserves a lot higher regard as far as its emotional depth and the amount of things that it threads together as far as storytelling from both a structural and genre perspective, I'm willing to go for a 9.5 on this. 
So that would be an 8.83 average between the three of us. Classicness. Dad, I usually let you go first, but I have one thing to really just put in before ahead of you to give you for consideration. Okay. Initially, I was hell-bent on giving this a just baseline 7. I didn't think this movie aged poorly. I didn't think it aged well, necessarily, other than just it's the basic classicness. I just thought it was a movie that's relatively modern and thus could just set a very moderate baseline with the note that it could eventually get more classic as it aged, just due to the timeless factor. However, I came across a quote from the director himself mentioning how somebody had asked him how this film would be different in a Me Too or a post-Me Too world. And he said his one big thing that he would have taken out of the movie is one of the jokes that you mentioned prior, and that's the breast fondling that happens every time Taki wakes up in her body. And so from that standpoint, if he's pointing that out about his own movie, and I know he feels some very complicated thoughts towards the film being both incomplete and unfinished, I don't necessarily agree, but I can at least respect how he feels that way since this was his creation. If he feels that that may be something that he would take out of the film, while because of the nature of animated films, it doesn't nearly bother me as much as if this had been in a live-action version, I will just slightly downgrade it to a six. So I will throw it to you, Dad. Well, I didn't find anything offensive or problematic or anything about the film. I made I commented about the joke. In fact, I think from a classicness point of view, there is a stronger relation to Eastern philosophies, religion, and culture now than there was. And I think it speaks more towards the current openness to other ideas and cultures that we did not have five years ago, 20 years ago, and needless to say, 40 years ago or beyond. Uh, You know, we start usually with a seven and go up or down. I went up to an 8.5 because, and the only thing I took out was exactly those points, which is, yeah, okay, you wake up in somebody else's body It's not sexual, and to make that joke or to comment or even whatever, that really wasn't necessary because, you know, you're in that situation. Of course, you know, if you're you're a female in a man's body, yeah, well, okay. And if you're a man in a female's body, yeah, okay. And that was the, the, the big point that I turned it down. So, Dennis, what do you think? I really think this movie has aged well. I mean, I know it's been six or seven years since um, since I first saw it, and um, the jokes still hold up. The animation still holds up. And so I, 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 I gave it an, an eight. So that's a 7.5 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. Dennis, we usually let our guests lead off on this category. <laughs> well, as I... I've said I, I saw this movie 14 times in 16 days, and I have now uh, since then seen this movie probably maybe 30 times. So for me, it's 
it's rewatchable. So I'm I'm giving it a nine. Only a nine. I thought for only sure you'd go ten. <laughs> no, no, only a nine. Dad. Okay, my standard is seven. Is yes, I'll rewatch this on a regular basis, and so I'm giving it a seven. I would rewatch it, and I mean, you know, I I would put it on if if we have guests or somebody's looking for it. I would put it on and suggest they watch it and see what they glean from it. It's still difficult for me. I'm a middle-aged white guy from the, from Midwest. Anime doesn't speak to me. It's not something I'm necessarily very comfortable with all the time. The fact that I would rewatch it, I think 7 is about where I am. So for me, I'm going to go also a 7. This is kind of the baseline of it's an important movie that I don't mind watching. Am I necessarily actively seeking it out? Probably not. But similarly to Three Idiots that we did before, this is a movie that I would easily suggest to other people and I think they could find very enjoyable. That is going to be something that's off the beaten path that they're probably not going to have been exposed to otherwise. That it, you know, take a chance on something if you really want two hours of a a good quality movie. In fact, when you originally mentioned, oh, it's my pick, can I pick something anime? Or is everybody okay with anime? And I think my exact words at the time were, it's not something that I would normally watch on my own, so please pick it because if you feel there's something important, it may be the only reason I have to ever go out and actually watch something like this. Good point. So that's a 7.67 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had a 96% for Google users and a 94% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.5 for that category. So to repeat the categories, we had an 8.67 for Legacy, an 8.67 for Impact Significance, an 8.83 for Novelty, a 7.5 for Classicness, a 7.67 for Rewatchability, and a 9.5 for audience score, giving us a final total of 50.84 and currently placing it on our list between Ocean's Eleven and Citizen Kane. Wow. (sighs) Dad? What? Your sigh implies a certain level of feelings. Yeah, well, somebody drug Citizen Kane down without basis. That would be you. You were lower on every one of your scores than I was. Every single one. That's a revisit next year. Well, you could have scored it differently. You decided not to. If Citizen Kane ranks that lowly, it's because of you, not me. All right. Well, whatever. All right. Remaining questions, then. What exactly precipitated the two main characters to start switching bodies? I felt it was like, you know, when Mitsuha was like calling out to the universe, I want to be a... uh, Tokyo boy in my next life. That's that's what started. That's what I... Well, my thought was is that she had already been switched with him before that ever happened. Well, Grandma commented about this is something that's part of the temple. This is part of their spiritual being. It's part of their growth and understanding religiously. Does it have anything to do with the comet? I don't know. How many times do we have a full moon? And things seem to happen strangely. I mean, we obviously the moon has some effect on the earth because we have tides. 
caused by the moon. So who knows? It may very well have been. Famously, Mark Twain, or Samuel Clemens, if you want to use his real name, commented that when he was born when Halley's Comet came, and he would die when Halley's Comet came again. Either of you have any remaining questions? I do. Please go ahead. Can you please explain to me why anime characters seem to be very Caucasian in appearance? I wondered that myself. They have blue eyes, very light white or white skin, or a lot of them have blue eyes. They don't look Asian, even though anime tends to be more popular within the Asian culture. I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think of is is that, you know, for Caucasians, we want to get a tan. You know, we want to be bronze, you know. And when, when I went to Thailand, my daughter was an exchange student in Thailand. When you went to Thailand, the epitome of beauty, they would pay and have their skin bleached. And they would wear blue contact lenses so that they looked like they had blue eyes. Because for whatever reason, a culture seems to fancy as the epitome of beauty whatever is not within their general physical makeup. Come now, Dad. I think Hello Kitty looks plenty Asian. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Dennis, do you have any remaining questions? I do. Why did the messages just all of a sudden become, uh, become gibberish and start disappearing only at the exact moment when Taki started looking for them when they were at that crater site? I have no good answer for that. I think that's part of the structure of the movie and it makes it seem more mysterious and helps pique your interest. But as far as an actual logical explanation, I don't have one. I think realistically it had to happen in order for it to create the mystery, the unexplained attraction. So do they actually get together in the end? Of course. I have uh, an answer, but it doesn't really answer your question. Did you know that they appear in Makoto Shinkai's uh, next movie? No. Weathering with you. Um, So they do appear in that movie but they don't seem to be to, they didn't seem to be together in that movie. Well, that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. So, so here's the one thing. If and I could just see Neil deGrasse Tyson doing a video on this had this really broken through in culture. If a rock hurtling from space creates that significant of a crater, wouldn't it destroy more than just the town? That is true. Yep. Like, it might be almost world-shattering. This is one where, uh, you know, he'll do an open live chat on TikTok or Instagram is just to pose this question. He would be the type that would sit down and watch the film and analyze it as an astrophysicist. Well, maybe it's something to try and uh, work out for the show. Sure. That would be quite the coup to get uh, him on to talk about it. I don't think he'd come on our program necessarily, although he does a lot of appearances. But just for him to even recognize it and answer the question, I think, and then we could feature it, would be something. Either of you have any more remaining questions? No. Nope. All right. 
thank you very much for being on with us, Dennis. We very much enjoyed having you. Anything that you would like to plug for yourself or anywhere anybody can find you on social media if you want to give that out? Sure. Uh, they can find me on Instagram. Uh, my username is D-E-N-S-Y 3000. Thank you for having me. Dad, remaining thoughts for the week? No, although I'll be doing my victory dance. Yes, I was going to mention it here. For anybody that was fascinated with our Oscar bet, I'm pretty sure unless you were really intent on watching for the consequences during the show, you wouldn't know from just looking and comparing the categories of everything what actually transpired because you would have to queue up a video of In Memoriam because it went to a tiebreaker. I think you got best live action short correct, and I did not. And you got, what was the other one you got? Now, see, of course, now I'm forgetting. Neither of us got original score. Correct. I know I got best original screenplay correct, which I was very nervous about, but then it tied it up and I did a very big fist pump during the Oscars party I was attending. So it did come down to In Memoriam. And because I let you have Angela Lansbury... You won. Now, you would have won even if I had gone first because your second person, who I completely missed, was actually after Angela Lansbury, James Kahn, but my pick of Ray Liotta was much before that. So, in fact, there was a, a gap so large that we thought, oh, is Angela Lansbury going to even be on the In Memoriam, given that they had missed at least a couple of other notable names for this year's Oscars. So we actually watched just to make sure Angela Lansbury popped up. Yeah, I don't know what they were doing, quite frankly. Oh, it was online, but they didn't do it at the ceremony. That makes no sense. I mean, Paul Saravino, the guy was an icon, and you don't put him on? I mean, that's just ridiculous. He's the father of a Academy Award winner. Yeah, and he was in... I think something like 50 or 60 movies. Notably in Goodfellas. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't make much sense to me as far as that. Anne Heche also not being in there doesn't make much sense to me, but... Tom Sizemore. I'm not the one making the decisions for the show. But that means instead of you watching Freddy Got Fingered, I gotta watch Batman and Robin. Yes, I'm I'm very appreciative So I can't promise you when that episode will happen. Just know that I have to have that out before next year's Oscars. (laughs) You got a year. I mean, wow. There's a bet. It will get done. Did you or did you not enjoy the Glenn or Glenda episode? Oh, I laughed so hard. Your mother's sister and I were having dinner and I put it on and they just... You were, you were trying to be serious, and we're like, you were so uncomfortable with this, and we're just laughing. When I told you that we laughed, you're like, well, I thought I was playing it serious. Yeah, that's the whole point. We are playing it so serious that we knew it was funny, because you just were having such a hard time being serious with this film. Well, I will try and put as much seriousness into Batman and Robin as I did for Glenn or Glenda. And uh, how much it insults my soul to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger do, like, 50 different ice puns. Yeah, 
I, I, I think there should be a requirement that you at least have to analyze on a scale of one to ten the bat nipples. <laughs> well, it's going to go in the classicness as aged poorly. <laughs> Rewatchability will be rather low. (laughs) I think I would almost have to put it at the bottom of my George Clooney movie ranking. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I've got the guts to die. What I want to know is, have you got the guts to live? Next week, we are discussing the third highest grossing film of 1958 and our first Tennessee Williams adaptation in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Directed and written by Richard Brooks, co-written by James Poe, starring Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, and Burl Ives. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in and are fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.